As the speaker's parade marked the start of today's sitting in the Senate, one member was noticeably absent. Senator Lynn Bayek was nowhere to be seen as calls for her resignation emerged over her defense of the residential school system. It equals uh, saying that uh, uh, what Hitler did to the Jewish was good. NDP MP Romeo Saganash is a residential school survivor and wants the conservative senator to step down for comments she made on Tuesday. Bayak offered unprompted support of residential schools during a Senate discussion on Indigenous women in prison. In memory of the kindly and well-intentioned men and women and their descendants, perhaps some of us here in this chamber, whose remarkable works, good deeds and historical tales in the residential schools go unacknowledged for the most part. The comments stunned fellow Senator Murray Sinclair, who oversaw the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I am a bit shocked that uh, you still hold some views that have been proven to be incorrect over the years, but nonetheless, I accept that you have the right to hold them. Bayak, who is a member of the Aboriginal People's Committee, has made similar comments in the past, telling senators in January, I was disappointed in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's report in that it didn't focus on the good. Welcome to the Magnificast. I'm Dean. And I'm Matt. And in this episode, we're talking with Melanie Campen, a doctoral student at Emmanuel College in Toronto, about her work on residential schools in Canada and their theological motivations. So if you don't know what residential schools are, uh, we'll tell you in this episode. Um, But to get us started here, uh, Canada had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that ended in 2015. And they concluded that the purpose of residential schools was to separate children from their families and interrupt the transmission of aboriginal cultural heritage between generations. Um, So it was a colonialist project uh, to basically separate indigenous people from their communities and uh, westernize and Christianize them. However, as you heard in the opening audio to this episode, some people, like uh, Senator Lynn Bayek, uh, are colonialist ideologues, so we thought it might be good to have Melanie share a little bit about her research, especially because residential schools are mostly run by Christians, um, so that poses a kind of interesting uh, problem that, you know, Christians should be hopefully still wrestling through today. So in this episode, we talked about some of the theological reasons that made Christians uh, and still make Christians willingly create these kinds of colonialist projects. Um, We talk about Christianity and colonialism generally and the complications of Mennonite identity uh, specifically because that's where a lot of Melanie's work is located. So all that and more, but stick around till the very end because we're also going to share some more details about the upcoming Virilio Summer Reading Group through the Magnificast, which you can join by supporting us on Patreon. All right, every week on the Magnificast, we start off by just catching up with one another. Uh, so we're going to do that right now. Um, but uh, since Melanie's here as our guest, maybe we can we can start with her. Melanie, what have you been up to in this last week? Uh, just working on a conference paper uh, that I'll be presenting in a couple weeks at uh, Anabaptist Conference in BC. Pretty much that, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, what's your paper about? Uh, it's about uh, decolonizing Mennonite theological method. That sounds really interesting and worthwhile. I imagine we'll talk about that more in a minute. So, Dean, what have you been doing, man? Uh, what have I been doing? The big news is uh, we bought a, a couch from Ikea. Uh, it's the first piece of new furniture we ever bought. And it's we really spent... Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, we spent a whole day putting it together and then found out that part of it was defective. Oh, no. Uh, so then we spent more time <laughs> talking to Ikea. And instead of uh, sending us like a new part that would be very easy to replace, they <laughs> want us to dismantle the entire couch. And then they're going to bring us a new couch that we'll uh, put together, I guess. Oh, no. uh, which is very <laughs> exploitative. Um, so, yeah, I never realized that, uh, you know, I'm just unpaid labor for Ikea until I had to undo all the labor that I already did. <laughs> Whoa. You, sh- you, should, uh, you should ask Ikea to uh, reimburse you for that. Yeah, I uh, 
we are. <laughs> yeah, just send them an invoice. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. That's super funny. Cool, uh, uh, Matt. What, what about you? What's what's the big the big haps? Uh, I've just been grading. Uh, it's like the end of the semester, and I'm just grading all the time, every day. Um, and uh, I'm sick of it. <laughs> I wish I could stop. <laughs> I'm almost done though, and it feels good to be almost done because I know I can do lots of fun things after I grade. Um, <laughs> oh, I also watched Twin Peaks. That's back. Twin Peaks is a big part of my life, uh, and uh, I watched the new the new eps, and they're very good. <laughs> uh, I guess I don't know. Is this a bad time to confess that I haven't watched Twin Peaks? Yeah, it's very bad. It's a, I've, okay. I've I won't never then. seen it. I don't even know what it's about. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's okay. It's a good TV show. David Lynch and Mark Frost directed it in the '80s, and then uh, it ended in a sort of weird spot. Um, and uh, like many years later, it's it's back. And uh, people are losing their minds about it. <laughs> uh, th- well, that's exciting um, for you and for other people who are losing their minds. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you could be excited for me. I am. I, uh, <laughs> proximity excitement. Um, oh, I forgot to mention, I got the chance to meet some of your students. Matt here at uh, oh, yeah. ICS. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. some other uh, good Twitter folks. Um, Jonas and Kat from Calvin came. And uh, yeah. Summer and Jacob, your students came, and a bunch of other students came for an undergraduate conference we did, and they are very smart. So kudos, good, good job teaching yeah, them very well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm so psyched that they got to go. I haven't talked to them since they've been back. Um, I need to ask them how it went. I heard, uh, I heard that Summer got lost on transit or something. So that's not good. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. no big deal. <laughs> uh, they said it was. They said it was fun on Twitter. Or at least it sounded like it was fun on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's that's all that counts. If it's fun on Twitter, then it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's important. <laughs> all right. Um, Melanie, maybe you could just start off by telling us. Um, I don't know, like where you where you you, could, you do the the research at, where you're a student, what you do there, what it's like. <laughs> I don't know any of those things. Sure. Yeah, um, I guess I'm in the second year of my PhD program at Emmanuel College, which is the United Church-affiliated college at Toronto School of Theology, which is comprised of seven different denominational colleges. And I'm actually um, part of the new PhD conjoint program with U of T, which is pretty exciting to have a conjoint degree like that and benefit from some of the larger university stuff. Um, I'm working with Marilyn Legg, who is my supervisor, Dr. Marilyn Legg. She is an amazing supervisor, extremely supportive, and I have the opportunity of TAing with her in her her class, uh, Christian Ethics in Context, which I've done twice now, and it's really fun, and it makes me excited for Mm -hmm. when I get to teach my own classes, so that's really fun. Um, And yeah, other than that, I'm done my coursework now, so... Just trying to wrap up a few papers before I start comps in the fall. Nice. Uh, what's your um, doctoral research that you're working on now? Uh, everything is kind of geared towards the dissertation in my program, which is really nice. Uh, I don't end up doing like a ton of um, side work, which can get you distracted from your project. Uh, mm-hmm. So working on basically uh, Mennonite involvement in residential schools in Canada and sort of both historically, but also what's going on theologically there. Uh, yeah, that is a very interesting thing. Um, and surprise, also why we uh, wanted to talk to you on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, maybe you could... So I'm from the United States, even though I live in Toronto now. And I didn't really know anything at all about residential schools till I moved to Canada. Um, and also don't know that much about them still. <laughs> um so if you could give, uh, I don't know, like for people who've never heard of a residential school, um, like what are you talking about? What what are they? Yeah. So uh, Indian residential schools were primarily funded by the Canadian government um, to, and then basically run by different churches. Um, so Catholic, Anglican, United, Methodist, um, 
and then a couple of Mennonite ones as well. Uh, and the purpose of them was to take indigenous children um, away from their homes, away from their reservations, and put them in schools altogether where the purpose was to assimilate them, basically. A common line that's heard is, like, to um, kill, the ma- uh, kill the Indian and save the man kind of a thing. And so kind mm-hmm. of trying to, like, redeem the indigenous person from their squalor that was kind of the the approach to it that was the understanding as indigenous people as very uh inferior to western civilization and so the idea was that adults were sort of unredeemable maybe some could be converted but really the goal was to get children uh into christianity as quick as possible and assimilated into western uh culture and so the children uh, often weren't allowed to speak their language at the schools. Um, their hair was cut, which was very significant because um, a lot of indigenous cultures, uh, certain haircut, hairstyles and braids were very important to a sense of identity and spirituality. Um, yeah, and then just like westernization of clothing, um, catechesis, and basically, yeah, conversion. And then a lot of the schools um, had big problems with sexual abuse and physical abuse of children. Um, There are even cases of uh, medical experiments and forced sterilization done on indigenous children, indigenous women. And yeah, a lot of children died and experienced a lot of trauma in these schools. Um, uh, Could could you give like a, I guess a, like a general time frame that some of these things are happening or, or at least like the time frame that you're focusing on in your research? Yeah, I don't remember when the first school started. I feel like it was in the late eight, late 19, late 1800s, but it might have been like, because I get the US and Canada mixed up too. <laughs> but it was happening throughout the 20th century and what is even more significant perhaps than when it started was when it ended, yeah. which the last school closed in Canada in 1996. Oh my God. Which is appalling (laughs) yeah that is insane so fresh uh i don't know it's like scary when these things uh don't feel like distant histories or something um time is like very short (laughs) yeah um and i guess yeah just the other thing that i wanted to say was like in like the u.s has a similar history but i think they were just called like missionary boarding schools and the relationship between the government and the church, I think, might have been different. I can't speak to that completely. Uh, so you mentioned a lot of them were run by uh, churches, and then there's a kind of uh, intrinsic goal of Christianizing, you know, students. Uh, yeah. And I was really intrigued by earlier you were talking about how you, you're focusing on some of the theological questions behind residential schools. Um so what do you mean by that? Like, why why would a church, for example, sort of take this on as a, you know, a consistent thing with whatever their Christian mission or vision or something? Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of churches, it was sort of based around their interpretation of the Great Commission. So the idea that we have to Christianize the world and that, yeah, Jesus is for everybody and um, we're sort of semi-responsible for the salvation of everyone on earth, even though like God is the one who saved, it's like, you know, humans, we better do our part um, in making sure, you know, as many people are saved as possible. So it was really focused on that kind of like internal uh, conversion. Um, For Mennonites specifically, I don't really know. There is that same broad um, focus on, on salvation. Um, yeah, so I guess what was really interesting to me about Mennonites was their particular commitment to pacifism and nonviolence on the one hand, but then being involved in something like residential schools. And what was it that they didn't recognize that as a form of violence and instead Mm -hmm. like a really good thing that they were doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting uh, because uh, this seems like something that is... uh pretty violent in, in a lot of obvious ways, I guess. Uh, but they see it more, they, they saw it as more as like evangelical, like being uh, like evangelizing or something than yeah. systematic yeah. violence against people. Huh? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so what do you think? Um, okay. Christians, uh, you know, 
massively participated in this on purpose. Uh, the government didn't have to <laughs> coerce them into it. It was kind of like yeah. a glad, uh, you know, yeah, we'll do that because we're supposed to. That's like what Christians do. Um, I, do you feel like uh, in Canada, I know the government and indigenous people are, you know, slowly trying to figure all this out and work on <laughs> mm-hmm. it. And they had this Truth and Reconciliation Commission Um and I know that in some of the calls to action uh, coming out of that commission, there are a mm-hmm. lot of responsibilities put on churches to, you know, own up to these things, apologize yeah. for them. Um, I, I'm Catholic, so okay. uh, a lot of that burden falls on the Catholic Church because I know that they operated the majority of those schools. Um, yeah. In your research, kind of finding the theological drive for having these schools, uh, how do you find Christians are kind of now wrestling with the legacy of... Um, you know, their participation and, I don't know, how they're trying to uh, make amends for that or something? Or or is that just, like, not really even on the table in a lot of cases? Yeah. Um, There definitely have been several apologies issued by churches. I know the Anglicans have, the United Church has, I think, twice. They had one in the 80s, and then, I think, don't quote me on that, and then, like, one more recent. Um... As far as I know, the Mennonite Church has not issued an apology. I think the Catholic Church has also issued an apology. Um, it's really interesting, actually, to look at those different apologies. Um, I had done some work like a year ago on looking at the different apologies and sort of what they mean and and what their purpose is um, and what effect they kind of have. And so one thing that I found was basically all of them explicitly ask for forgiveness. And I thought that was like, that really rubbed me the wrong way because Mm -hmm. um, it was almost like they were apologizing and now the onus for reconciliation was on the Uh, victims. uh, And and like, even in just like a very personal sense, like if someone, you know, does harm to you and then like apologizes, if they then like ask for forgiveness, it's like, wait, what? No, now you like feel like you're forced to forgive or like you're for like it's like well if you say no then you're hindering reconciliation right mm-hmm. and so it's like the you know if you ask for forgiveness like i basically said you, you better be prepared for no to be a legitimate answer yeah. but because <laughs> it's like christians asking for forgiveness it's like there's this sort of hidden agenda of like but you know that you can't actually say no, right? Because Christians are supposed to forgive. So it's <laughs> right, all right. kind of weird and like tied together. Um, it's, it's 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 weird and it comes across, across as manipulative to me, even if it doesn't intend to be. Yeah, it, it sounds kind of um, sounds kind of hollow. Just asking for something with it, where there's no real like n- nothing really attached to it, right? There's no stakes for, yeah. for the for the Christian denominations. Yeah. Uh, since you work at these kind of theological levels, um, Melanie, this reminds me of a thing that just happened in the U.S. where uh, there's a Jesuit-run school that um, part of their history is that I guess they sold uh, a bunch of um, black people as slaves uh, Mm -hmm. to pay for, I don't know, building stuff or whatever. Anyway, the Jesuits were, uh, they, they issued a big apology for it, but there were barely any material ramifications. Uh, I think the biggest thing was they decided to give uh, preferential admissions to um, uh, descendants of the specific slaves that they sold. Uh, And it was like Um, just extremely low stakes and very bad. Uh, Do you you think there's kind of a a pathology in, I don't know, Christian apologies and forgiveness that just stops justice from ever being uh, administered? Like, how would you articulate that? Definitely, definitely, I agree with you. Um, That's so gross in so many ways. Um, Yeah, and like to then assume that that the thing that, you know, the black people that they're apologizing to want is like admissions to their school. That's so (laughs) strange. Like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk, especially in the U.S. about reparations and specifically material reparations mm-hmm. um in canada also talk about um i guess uh financial reparations a lot um not as much as the language of reparations get gets used but we have a lot of settlement agreements um that are in a court between indigenous communities and um, other organizations and in you know industries um yeah it's it's kind of 
it's hard to describe. And that's part of the problem is that we don't really have the language to describe sort of that pathology or what's like going on. Um, one of the ways I've tried to get at that is through the language of spectrality, I found to be really helpful mm -hmm. and like other forms of affect theory. Um, I guess they do a lot of theory in my theology too, just because I find it really helpful because um, I'm analyzing systems and structures of violence and theology tends to lack language in that. So I draw mm -hmm. on a lot of theory and it seems to me that a lot of sort of um, white settlers, both in Canada and the US, kind of get, get stuck in their guilt and there's a sense of haunting that they sort of can't deal with then. And I don't really know what happens psychologically, um, but there's this kind of block and like refusal to take responsibility. Um, and that really just, you know, puts a spoke in it and, and doesn't allow any way forward. I think you're right. Like I don't, with the current frameworks, there's not really a way to imagine like real justice or reconciliation because like the truth work can't even be done right. yet. Hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that spectrality thing. Um, sorry, man, I'm just asking all the questions. No, it's but, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I was, was going to ask uh, Melanie to maybe say a little bit um, about that paper that I heard mm -hmm. you give. Because um, you mentioned spectrality there, and if I remember right, so you were kind of doing some archival work on one of these residential schools in particular, yeah, looking through uh, photographs and mm -hmm. uh, yearbooks. And I just thought that was such an interesting way to get at what's happening in those schools, because it takes it out of the level of, you know, a, I don't know, a thing, a historical event that happened that you could sort of analyze, and it, it puts you in touch with, you know, actual human children <laughs> yeah. and uh also the apparatus of administrators etc that are yeah. organizing those children yeah. and it's it's just very uncomfortable and i don't know could you just say something about what you were talking about in that and how that relates to spectrality as you're using it mm -hmm. sure um so i guess it kind of started um with my visit to the mohawk institute residential school in Brantford, ontario which is Haudenosaunee territory, um, to the field, you know, hearing about what happened there, walking through the school, um, yeah, feeling uneasy. And I had taken a course with Shereen Razak, who is incredible. She was teaching at OISE here in Ontario. Now she's at UCLA. Um, and she made us read um, a couple of things on spectrality. And I found that to be a good way to get at what I was feeling because there was no other framework in which I could answer the question of um, how to talk about like uneasiness mm. or even better, like the feeling of the, like an unsettling feeling, like and all the meanings of that intended, like, mm. you know, a settler feeling unsettled. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I found that, yeah, ontology really gave me some language to talk about what's happening in the background of these things sort of like yeah the the present absences um the feelings that people get i've got i've got the paper in front of me here <laughs> there's just this really there's just this really good quote um by avery gordon that i want to read if i can yeah, um, yeah for sure from her book um ghostly matters haunting the sociological imagination and uh so gordon writes um, I'm quoting, haunting is constitutive of modern social life. It is neither pre-modern superstition or individual psychosis. It is a generalizable social phenomenon of great impact. So it's not, when she's talking about ghosts, it's not this like um, airy fairy, ooh, like ghosts that you see in movies, whatever. It's, um, it's a social phenomenon. Um, and then she continues... As a concept, mediation with ghosts describes the process that links an institution and an individual, a social structure and a subject, a history and a biography. In haunting, organized forces and systemic structures that are, appear removed from us make their impact felt in everyday life in a way that confounds our analytic systems and confounds the social separations themselves. And that's the end of the quote. So it's this um, really taking up a different language and a different framework for talking about uh, how social systems are constructed and how they're being operated and maintained. Um, 
Yeah, so I did that by looking at uh, residential school yearbooks because looking at them also makes me very uneasy. Um, I realized that yearbooks are actually like a very powerful way of constructing social memory for a group Hmm. Um, because in yearbooks, you're not going to show like happy moments. I mean, you're only going to show happy moments. You're not going to show, you know, anything bad or suspect that happened um, because yearbooks are texts that are meant to curate a specific kind of memory, namely a good memory. You know, it's like, it's a nostalgic document. Right. Um, and nostalgia is also, you know, a form of colonial desire. And so you can see that in a lot of ways in the yearbooks, especially considering that the students wouldn't have any agency in the mm-hmm. construction of the yearbook. Like they maybe put pictures in and stuff, but um, the way it's constructed, the little editorial pieces that are written in it, the captions, um, you know, in, inserted scripture verses that's all really done by the editor and then it always is prefaced with a note from the principal which is always really striking mm. um, in terms of you know noting how much good they believe they're doing in this school that's really fascinating uh, could you talk a little bit more about about the yearbooks is there like is there like one like image or set of images that like really strike you that that kind of drive the the spectrality of those things for you? Um, I guess a couple of things. I guess like the the image of the portraits of the children. Like generally, yearbooks have you know a portrait of everyone who's in the school. Um, so just the varied expressions, I think. Um, and um, I think what like struck me the most was how sort of banal and benign it looked um and I think it was meant to do that like I think it's it's meant to be like you know to show how much good the school is doing and how well integrated everyone is and I'm sure you know that's the kind of language they would use Mm -hmm. um and yeah how happy everyone is here and that to me made me really uneasy because I know of uh, conflicting stories, um, stories that they were not generally happy places. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, there, was, there was another picture that really made me uneasy. It was like um, they were baking Bannock together and they also made cradle boards. And I just thought to myself when I saw that, man, like, that would be such a good way to assuage any, you know, settler fears about uh, that the school might not be good or or, because it it looks like cultural inclusion, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. But to me, it just seemed like it wasn't really, it was like a way, you know, of saying, oh, we'll take a couple of elements from this specific um, indigenous nation and include them and you know sort of deceive ourselves into thinking that this is some sort of intercultural experience <laughs> right yeah huh that is um pretty troubling because i could because i could i can just like when i'm looking at that picture i can hear in my head another white settler like myself saying but they made cradle boards but uh-huh. they baked bannock so yeah. it's really not full assimilation. Like, they clearly have respect for the... No, like, that's not at all what's happening, I don't think. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's like one more tool of um, making uh, making that system of violence more palatable, both to the oppressor and the oppressed, I guess, in some ways, because you, you give the illusion that you're actually respectful when, in fact, it's just one more tool of domination. It's, like, even worse. <laughs> yeah, right. it's an even less recognizable um, sort of technology of maintaining the system of oppression yeah and reproducing that system too through through the very people who are caught into it which is yeah uh, yeah makes me feel queasy yeah yeah uh so that particular school that you were looking at the yearbooks from um was that a Mennonite school yeah it was a Mennonite around residential school okay so what you were mentioning the principal note in the beginning. So what does a Mennonite principal say, for example, at the beginning of a yearbook? Okay, there's two two that I want to read. Okay. All right, so uh, one is, quote, by uh, 
principal in 1971. And so the opening comment includes, uh, yeah, there's a comment on the Ojibwe and Cree hunting traditions that he writes, and then followed by the, this exclamation, but that was long ago. You live now. <laughs> so that was really striking. <laughs> yeah. Um, a very clear installation of like a hierarchy of civilization. Yeah. Yeah. And and what, you know, is inferior and what is civilized. And then there is another one um, from the first available yearbook that I found, 1966. I think the school opened in 62. So this is from 66. Um, the principal then uh, reflected on um, his his strong belief in, you know, the goodness of the school. So he writes, often I would sit back and watch the school buzz with activity. And then I would contemplate, what effect will this have on student lives, on staff lives, on my life, on the Indian people as a whole? on our Canadian nation, on the world, on the universe, on eternity. <laughs> the influence of this activity will never end. The past oh belongs to yeah. The past belongs to historians, the present belongs to us, and the future is in God's hands. And I just it blew my mind. Um, cause he's right, but for the wrong reasons. Right. <laughs> like like in a bad way, not in a good way that that he thinks. Um so I think it was really striking to me because so often I hear um, a white settlers, uh, you know, react to things and be like, well, I don't think they, you know, really knew what they were doing. It's like the more that I read these documents, the more I'm convinced they knew exactly what they're doing. And they thought it was really, really good. Yeah, I think yeah, um, a good note. So the impetus to take responsibility is like way stronger the more I read. Um, yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's a good note to make because uh, I think a lot of times when people talk about sort of systemic violence, um, we end up talking, you know, about the banality of evil or whatever, and people just following yeah. following orders. But I think yeah. uh, I think from what you've read there, it's pretty clear that uh, the folks involved with residential schools uh, really bought into that ideology, and you know, mm-hmm. they, they weren't just doing it because someone told them to do it; they were doing yeah. it because they felt the moral imperative to do that. Yeah. And that... Well, and this this school too, in particular, was was. Um started by a mission organization and then a couple years later fund started to be funded by the government mm. um sometimes people like to sort of put more blame on the government and you know but I, I really don't think i just see that as like um what uh eve tuck an indigenous uh writer and academic here in ontario um, calls a settler move to innocence. Uh, it's just excuses. Yeah, it's crazy too to think about the uh, um, the way that you're coming at these problems as you know theologically driven mm-hmm. and theologically motivated because it like in it, it's really hard to think of any other reason that you would you know feel as though uh, your work as a principal would have such cosmic significance. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's like very scary in that way. And mm-hmm. there's just something so powerful about theological motivations, both, you know, for it's like, it can be the most emancipatory discourse precisely for that reason. And the most like horrifically oppressive hege- hegemonic uh, discourse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. On, on that note then of, uh, I guess, you know, is it, was it the church or, or was it the government or like, you know, who's to, who's to blame there? Um, since it is a Mennonite school, I think we should probably uh, get into the, uh, I guess, Mennonite reputation. Uh, that's mm-hmm. sometimes romanticized, uh, especially by people on the, the more like political left uh, mm-hmm. side of the spectrum that, you know, Mennonites are, are radical anti-statists and they're <laughs> anti-violent and everything like that. But uh, this gives an interesting counter narrative to that romanticization Um so how does that play in to your project? Yeah, yeah. So one of the first things that led me into this project, um, besides sort of personally, um, personally wanting to dig more into what happened and being really moved by the history of residential schools in Canada as I learned about it in my life, was um, the Mennonite connection. So for a long time, I during the TRC, I kept asking um, leaders of Mennonite organizations, um, and I won't name names at this point, um, <laughs> kept asking them, 
you know, like sort of what's the Mennonite story? Because like we, you know, settled on indigenous land too. So there must be like we must like we must be complicit in a way more than just settling on the land. Mm. And and um, and uh, people told me no, no, meant like Mennonites. It wasn't as bad because we didn't actually run any residential schools. So shortly after the TRC ended, I found out that we actually did, and that really broke a lot of trust for me. I felt like I was sort of betrayed by my own people. And I still have this sort of, I, uh, as a Mennonite and as a first generation Canadian, I, I have, I think, a different attachment to Mennonites as a people than maybe some other people do to their, mm. you know, religious group. Um, especially a lot of Christians don't, don't seem to have the same attachment, but I call, I call Mennonites sort of my people. Um, and so I feel I want us to be accountable for our actions in the past, you know, even if it wasn't me or, um, you know, if it wasn't the case of the residential school I'm thinking of, it wasn't, it wasn't run specifically by um, the Mennonite church conference. And that's, I think uh, I speculate a large reason for why neither the Mennonite church in the USA or the Mennonite church in Canada has taken responsibility for it. Which really pisses me off, to be quite honest. Yeah. Because because Mennonite identity is so collective and crosses generations so strongly. Um, when it comes to other like theological things. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's different than like in the Catholic Church where you just you point at the bishop and like that's the guy. If you want an apology, <laughs> you just ask that guy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, because Mennonite history is so important to so many Mennonites, and then it's like oh, well, no, this wasn't really us, so just because they identified as Mennonites uh, doesn't mean, you know, we, we should take responsibility for these schools. I don't know. It really bugs me. Um, so, yeah, going back to your question of theology in particular, um, what got me interested in it was, so you have a Mennonite commitment to pacifism, generally, not across the board, obviously, mm -hmm. um, but Mennonites are known for their commitment to pacifism and nonviolence, and so you had a lot of conscientious objectors in the Second World War. Now, what is never talked about is that some of these conscientious objectors worked as teachers in Indian residential schools as alternative service. Hmm. Um, that wow. is something that was very striking to me, and, and really, I think, was sort of the linchpin to making me pursue this specific line of research. Because I was like, what theologically allowed for this to happen for, you know, this explicit form of colonization not to be seen as a form of violence? Um, you know, theologically, what's going on in these Mennonite communities um, that allow yeah. for such narrow definitions of peace and violence yeah that's a question that yeah. Dean and i have talked about kind of a lot just in the, yeah. in, the uh, in terms of like a larger christian conversation about violence yeah um but i don't know what do you what do you think what, what's uh, what's at the bottom <laughs> of that like why yeah. why did they I, I mean world war ii has lots of uh i mean it's a really complicated yeah uh situation um yes. <laughs> but uh what uh I don't know why is serving the government in uh, in residential schools, I guess, uh, better for Mennonites, less violent than World War Two. Yeah, um, maybe like just adding on to the way Matt just asked the question too. Mm -hmm. uh, the the frame that comes up in my mind when you were talking just now was like, uh, why why would it be less violent um, or not violent at all? You know, nonviolent to participate in residential schoolings uh, as opposed to like killing fascists or something yeah, <laughs> like no, that, no that's like a really weird way of kind of juxtaposing the commitments um yeah i was gonna ask well that that's that. a very interesting question because there <laughs> there's some interesting things about mennonites with relation to that so <laughs> some of it there were some mennonites who um were kind of supportive of nazism because the Germans helped them get out of Russia. Ah. Hmm. And so that's a really long story, and that's really all I want to say about that now. But that is something <laughs> that people have written about, and you can find articles on it. Mennonites don't like to talk about this, but that's another really uh, sort of 
um, strange part of Mennonite history and Mennonite sort of uh, how Mennonite identity gets wrapped up with weird national identities. Um, but to answer your question, um, Mennonite um, definitions and understandings of violence I'm painting with broad brush strokes because obviously I recognize that there, you know, things are always more complex and you can always find groups that, you know, don't fit the norm in any, you know, group that you're looking at. Right. But um, generally Mennonites have understood violence as a very physical and um, recognizable action. Hmm. So starting with the Anabaptists, the refusal to use the sword. Um, goes all the way back to that. And not all Anabaptists believed that, um, but sort of those, those, who, those who shaped the dominant narrative among Mennonites were those who refused to use the sword. Um, and that refusal then kind of carried over, okay, well, what's like the most overt form of violence now? It's like, you know, war. And so we refuse to take up arms. Um, but then don't really, you know, A, recognize other forms of alternative service as supporting the war um, and be um, don't recognize certain forms of alternative service as violent in and of themselves and that was the case that latter part was the case with mm. the residential schools and um, actually reading through some documents um, what I found was it wasn't simply an alternative form of service, but what was happening was the people who were working in the schools and starting these schools for indigenous children, they were the progressive Mennonites of that time. Mm, wow. In this, in, this, in this group, in this group of people, um, and sort of in that region. And what happens in some of the letters between administrators and, and sort of uh, conference leaders or, you know, other people in, in higher positions um, is this idea that it's being led by the younger people and it's a form of religious inclusion. Now, <laughs> try to wrap your head around this because it's yeah. very difficult. <laughs> um, but at the time, the Mennonite, some Mennonite communities were seen as very sectarian, um, even ones that weren't living um you know, in their own communities, specifically isolated and, you know, recognizably apart from the world. Like, I'm not thinking about Amish or Hutterite or Old Colony. I'm right. thinking of, you know, sort of integrated, westernized Mennonites, but who are still more conservative and um, who maybe don't want a lot to do with the world um, and politics and stuff. Um, and people of different... <laughs> Uh, religions and faiths and um, definitely people of different race backgrounds and so um, it was sort of the younger people who were pushing the administrators and church leaders to say no like look the way we understand the gospel is that we can't just like keep it to ourselves like we can't be so sectarian. We have to go out and share the gospel with the world. We have to go where nobody else wants to go, and that's to these indigenous communities. Mm. Well, that was kind of the theological impetus behind it, which, like, almost makes it worse. <laughs> like, yeah. but that's the like that's the more progressive um, viewpoint, and that you know there were there were conflicts in communities and in churches about. You know, do you do you let uh, an indigenous person who has converted to Christianity? You do let them worship with you in the same space as as a, and and then you would have people arguing no, hmm. and then people arguing yes as a form of religious inclusion. This was the progressive mm -hmm. thing to do. Mm -hmm. Conversion was the progressive thing to do. There's absolutely no recognition that that's violence at all. Huh. Right. Yeah, that's so crazy to me because, you know, um, uh, I think for a lot of people, like Matt was saying earlier, who identify sort of on the left, uh, Mennonites and, you know, Anabaptists generally just become this, uh, 
this radical witness to the world or whatever, yeah. doing something totally different. And, you know, they're the ones that emerged out of the Reformation with this kind of very, you know, ahead of their time uh, negation of um, abuses of power, etc. Uh, but it's certain abuses of power. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, not within it's really... their own community, though. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's uh, even more ironic, right? Because the, the yeah. idea is you can only really feel that way about any group uh, by virtue of never having spent time with them or, like, yeah. met anyone who's a part of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mennonites can also be very self-congratulatory in a lot of these aspects. Um, like, things like Mennonite Central Committee, the NGO, really gets praised for the work that they do and are kind of seen as, like, a front-runner in in how NGOs function across the world and the kind of approach they have to development work and peace work. But on the other hand, it's like, like I said, um, yeah, abuses of power, but really only like certain forms of power. Like I've sometimes said Mennonites are anti-status, but not anti-colonial. Mm. Mm. Um, and to, I, I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they might even be anti-imperial in some senses. You know, Mennonites who are um, against other forms of colonization in different parts of the world. Um, you know, people who are Mennonites who are critical of um, the way that, you know, Israel is occupying Palestinian territory, for example, but don't have sort of the same level of critique towards um, indigenous people in Canada. Mm. Um, so there's that. And then oh, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> uh, well, I was just sort of making an observation about, I don't know, how people relate to Mennonites as a, a sort of radical oh, yeah. group. I was saying, um, yeah, abuses, abuses of power on in a certain way, um, but never sort of within or among Mennonites themselves. And so the besides um, not attending to violence of colonialism, also a huge problem in Mennonite communities across Canada and the U.S. is uh, domestic violence and sexual abuse in churches and the silencing that occurs around that. And that I really don't want to hold that apart from colonial violence either because mm. Indigenous women were highly sexualized and continue to be highly sexualized. Um, and that is that is part of the patriarchal regime in Mennonites that I think has affected both Mennonite women, um, was then internalized by Mennonite women and in turn racialized so that both white uh, Mennonite men and women um, felt sort of this power over indigenous people. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Um, well, let me take uh, this opportunity to like overshare about my personal life, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, uh, explain like a weird situation that I'm in, and I'd I'd be I think it, I think it relates to the conversation. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I go to a free Methodist church, and it's uh, very Protestant, and uh, a really weird mix of like uh, high liturgy, but like very low church other stuff. Um, anyways, we had like a society meeting very recently, and um, they made the mistake of putting me on the missions committee. Uh, I, I don't know why people ask me to do these types of things because uh, I don't know. I can only, I can only give some very limited, ex like li limited input on things like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Capitalism is bad. And like, uh, <laughs> that's about it. Um, anyway, so they, they like, I'm, I'm in charge of it for a hot second until they find someone better to do it. Um, but I was talking through, um, what it is like, I don't know, missionary work is and does and like how churches kind of approach that. And the entire conversation to me is just like hard to have because um, so much of like the overseas mission work that my church is, is involved in. And uh, I don't know, I think just like just generally overseas mission work just comes off very colonialist to me and very, mm -hmm. um, very imperialist. I don't know. Uh, I, was, I was just like reading, reading about some of the different efforts and, uh, it just all feels really gross to me. And I don't, I don't know yeah. if I'm being like overly critical or if it really is that way. Um, yeah. and, and I don't know like a lot about what's going on on the ground anyways, but, um, it, it just makes me wonder like if you can be a Christian and like abstain somehow from the colonialism that's inherent in mission work. Um, can, can we, can we ever disentangle 
Christianity from its colonialist projects that have been, I mean, there's so, so much a part of this last century. Last. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a very, very common question that gets asked. Um, and um, I kind of want to answer it in two ways. And so the first way is by saying, uh, I want to acknowledge and deeply, deeply respect um, post-colonial and liberative theologies and the work um, that indigenous Christian theologians have done and continue to do both theologically as well as in their communities. Um, like, I really, really respect that. Um, I also have heard a lot of frustration from non-Christian indigenous people that the church's primary engagement has been with indigenous Christians. Um, and there's, there's still sort of this element of like trying to decenter Christianity by including more um, indigenous theology. Mm. But what I have heard from non-Christian indigenous folks, uh, for example, a couple of years ago, Justice Murray Sinclair um, who was uh, one of the people, um, I forget what his title was, but running in the TRC, one of the, one of the indigenous people heading the TRC, um, and really well known sort of across Canada as an activist and he's a judge as well. Um, we were at the, a gathering of, uh, Mennonites, who are interested in and involved in indigenous issues in Canada, specifically in Manitoba. And one of the things he said was basically that reconciliation will never happen until Mennonites can recognize indigenous knowledge and spirituality as legitimate. Mm. And so as much as, um, you know, decentering Christianity from its capitalist and colonial roots is a good thing. Um, Cause I think that, um, you know, liberative and decolonial theologies are much better. Um, I think there also needs to be the efforts of the churches to come to a place where they recognize um, indigenous knowledge and spirituality as legitimate and where you don't have that Christianizing impulse anymore. So recognizing like that indigenous knowledge and, and spirituality is, um, huh, is is a really good uh, suggestion and uh, recognition of like the dignity of other people and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, in my neck of the woods, there's this tendency to gravitate sort of like a, a certain hermeneutic uh, of um, I don't know, like biblical understanding or I don't know, however you say that kind of stuff um, mm -hmm. about like uh, in Galatians where, where Paul says, you know, there's neither Jew nor Greek or uh, no, um, or, or like circumcised or uncircumcised and that whole thing. And, and that, uh, that like uh, turn um, towards universalism, I think is um, often misapplied towards like uh, a universality of all people and a universality of all types of knowing when we don't yeah. recognize like the like specific knowledges and experiences of people who are like, like not just non, not Christian, but like are kind of like outside the experience of like the white settler sort of understanding. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so uh, anyways, uh, a asking, um, asking white Christians to uh, recognize the legitimacy of indigenous knowledge is a huge step. Mm-hmm. Um, I also wanted to add um, that I really think that asking the question, you know, can Chris sort of, basically the question, can Christianity be non-colonial, is the wrong question to ask. Mm. Um, and it's a question that expresses this desire for purity um, that I think a lot of Christianity in Canada and the U.S., um, especially thinking of you know, certain forms of evangelicalism, mm -hmm. um, have. And I think a more helpful thing is to, to ask a question, you know, sort of to recognize 
to say what you know what are the complicities of Christianity because it's almost like you're skipping ahead mm-hmm. um, this desire to like get out of the sticky situation of talking about what are the complicities because we have not yet finished talking about those and then to you know to kind of jump ahead and say well you know like how do we how do we create a Christianity that's not colonial like when are we going to get to the place where you know we, we can say all right our work is done and you know we're not violent anymore we're not colonial anymore like i think that's really misguided that's probably that's a good uh a good correction i guess when i asked that question a few minutes ago um i guess my intention was like how like what are i don't know can we can we have a christian practice that doesn't continue um that type of violence and still um yeah it's still getting yeah. getting too far ahead but i mean because you're because you're right about that yeah but, yeah um but like, yeah, I don't, I I don't want to do it anymore. Like, how do I stop? Like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I think kind of what you're at. Uh, correct me if you're if if I'm wrong, but what I hear from you is, besides the deconstructive work of decolonizing, what is a constructive way forward? Because you can't, you know, like there's not only deconstruction. Yeah, I think that's a lot. <laughs> like, uh, you can't like stop living. That's a lot better you know? articulation of what I'm asking. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and so I think. Um, only recently have I kind of um, thought about where I want to go with that. I think I've been uh, reading some trauma theory, and mm. also when I was working in Winnipeg um, with a community organization, um, they talked a lot about uh, developing a trauma-informed workplace, and I took a lot of those things, considerations about um, space and sort of other affective elements of architecture and behavior and body language um, and policy and things and try to, I'm trying to think about that in terms of churches and theology and I, and what that has kind of led me to is instead of trying to develop more and better peace theologies or better, more comprehensive nonviolent theologies, um, I think it would be better for us to take um, the approach that trauma theory offers and um, to ask, you know, what does a trauma-informed church look like? What does mm-hmm. trauma-informed theology work, look like? So that your goal isn't um, sort of absolute peace or untainted nonviolence, but harm reduction and always harm reduction, harm reduction. Hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um that makes a lot of sense to me and also just seems to be a way of uh just reframing what it would mean to do something constructively um yeah you know so i don't know like <laughs> matt and i have a podcast about christianity and leftist politics um mm-hmm. in case you haven't heard yeah. and uh <laughs> oh <laughs> basically you know the whole idea is like we're trying to figure out i don't know ser- like explore these questions of how christians yeah. can contribute to like leftist projects and leftist yeah. uh you know um like action and activity and a lot of the people that we've interviewed have you know been from whatever like a communist party or someone who works on you know the black panthers etc and all that's very cool Mm -hmm. um and i like it but also uh i don't know the the way you're framing it here as um you know developing theological spaces and vocabularies that contribute to just harm reduction is Mm -hmm. such a good um way of uh, uh, getting rid of some of the pathologies that Christians get into, or at least yeah. I get into about like stressing out about whether or not you're contributing to the right uh, political cause or uh, yeah. <laughs> or not yeah. contributing to the wrong one or something. Absolutely, because it totally changes your framework and the kinds of questions you're asking. Instead of asking, you know, is this action nonviolent? You know, you are no longer preoccupied with that, but you're actually it ends up being really people centered and so you're looking around and asking who's experiencing the most harm and why and how can we reduce that Mm. um and that you know would actually allow the mennonite churches and communities and other churches and communities to focus on things that often get you know pushed to the side or silenced like um violence towards indigenous people through colonialism like sexual violence or in our communities like um racism anti-blackness um yeah yeah uh this is also a dumb way of putting it but i'm gonna do it anyway um (laughs) it just seems like such a like authentically christian thing to do which is to say uh to think from the perspective of the victim right and Mm -hmm. that's sort of the the cornerstone um 
like that i don't know i don't i don't like uh framing things in terms of like oh this is what real christianity is because whatever that's a bad way to frame it but i agree uh that being said um there is something that just resonates with you know i don't know what jesus is doing um Mm -hmm. in gospel narratives and Mm -hmm. uh hopefully what christians should do which is find people who are suffering and just like try to (laughs) work that out with them (laughs) insofar as you can um I don't know. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, because when I think about like what salvation means, you know, salvation, salve, it's about healing, right? Mm, and then right. reading that together with trauma theory and even with like the specific actions that Jesus did, like Jesus was involved in a lot of healing and not only healing people from physical ailments, but like, you know, the whole thing about um, release of the oppressors, release of the prisoners, like that I see those things as form of social healing, um, Mm. as well as personal for those people, um, you know, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, that sort of reference back to Isaiah. And, um, I see that like really resonating with the framework of trauma theory and harm reduction, like really healing is just another way of saying harm reduction, I think. Mm. Yeah, or at least saying it that way is different than talking about healing as a, I don't know, um, putting something back together where it's sort yeah. of like your uh, oh, responsibility yeah. to like restore this to what yeah. it was supposed to be. Um, it's just, yeah, it gets rid of a lot of those uh, really bad anxieties. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, oh man, okay, here's a connection. Uh <laughs> It also makes sense to me of uh, getting out of the paradigm that might have led a Mennonite, for example, to participate in residential schooling. Because mm-hmm. as you were talking about it earlier in our conversation, it seemed like there's a way in which you could uh, understand that wrongly as a kind of healing um, mm-hmm. of the world or the cosmos or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um But hopefully, I mean, whatever, all these things can be ruined, but hopefully you wouldn't... Uh, do such a thing if you felt like you know thinking from the perspective of harm reduction or trauma yeah um, i mean the language really and the language really wasn't of healing and there wasn't sort of that trauma framework um because i mean mennonites are like super bad at dealing with trauma because they're stoic and sweep everything under the rug um (laughs) but yeah like the sense i get from the documents isn't that it's an impulse for healing but this really sort of protestant uh, personal internal understanding of like what it means to be saved you know mm-hmm. your soul is saved uh, Melanie thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about your research it's been really fascinating um, is there any uh, other sort of resources you want to point people towards uh, if they're more interested yeah definitely um, I think if people want to learn more about the history of Indian residential schools um, in Canada I think there's uh, a documentary, that I think it's still on Netflix, it's called We Were Children. It's uh, a documentary interviewing two um, Indigenous people who attended residential schools, uh, as well has some dramatizations in it, and I don't know what the demographics are of uh, your listeners, but the dramatization is I think, definitely safe for, like, children as well, because it's not very graphic, it just kind of... Um, hints at what happened in certain situations if there's abuses that happened. Um, and then there are also two books. There's one uh, written by a white settler, uh, Paulette Reggett. Her book is called Unsettling the Set- Settler Within, Indian Residential Schools, Truth-Telling and Reconciliation in Canada. Very nice, comprehensive um you know, analysis of the residential schools. She worked alongside people who are running the TRC. Um, and I think this is, you know, exactly the kind of work that, you know, white settler academics are responsible for doing. Uh, and then there's also the book by Thomas King called The Inconvenient Indian, a curious account of native people in North America. Uh, kind of covers, uh, crosses borders between Canada and the U.S. I think a little bit more about the U.S. Um, you can see a little, some of some of the differences between um, the colonial climate in Canada and the U.S. there as well. So those those books together and the, the documentary, I think, are a really helpful start. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for talking with us, Melanie. And uh, this is all, like, uh, really good 
good stuff to like know and research, but also incredibly challenging for Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, so thanks for giving us that gift today on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was like a really great opportunity for me to get to share um, my work with other people who are interested in it. Yeah. Okay, uh, thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, thanks to Melanie again for coming and sharing with us. Uh, so interesting. Um, definitely going to watch that documentary. Uh, hey, so um, there's a reading group that we're doing. You can sign up on our Patreon account. Check out our uh, WordPress or our Twitter for more information on that. Um, also, simultaneously with this podcast, we're posting the reading group reading list uh, that we're going to be uh, focusing on this summer. And uh, that all starts on July 11th. So take some time and sign up on our Patreon account and you can get into that reading group and uh, read read stuff with us. Um, all right. So uh, as usual, uh, go uh, follow us on Twitter at The Magnificast. Um, like us on iTunes. I don't know what you even do on iTunes. Write us a review. That would be great. Um, yeah, follow us on SoundCloud. Look at our WordPress page. Give us money on Patreon. Oh my God, there's too much stuff for y'all to do. But but just do it. But but do it. And listen to us again next week. Yay, Magnificast. Thanks for listening. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up where well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late.